the first thing you need to explain is we're going to get hacked. That is not an if, it's a when, especially when you're talking about nation state and the threat actors that we're dealing with. The eventuality is that it's going to happen. The key is how quickly can you identify that it's happened and how well can you contain it from happening? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Dan Seals, Chief Information Security Officer at Bonterra slash EveryAction slash NGP Van. Having worked also for three cycles at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, Dan has now built a career at the intersection of security and politics. And he has a very interesting story. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Dan Seals at Bonterra. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? Good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Dan Seals. I'm currently the uh, CISO at Bonterra, but I have worked in democratic politics and in either IT or security for, well, pretty much since 2007 on the Hillary campaign. I was the IT director in Nevada um, and since then have you know, worked in some sort of um, political or tech space, um, social good since then. It's not a very large niche, the intersection of politics and security, but probably a growing one. I think it's an interesting one. I've talked previously to Jude Metch, who I'm sure you know, who's been over at the DS for many years and some other people who have tried to play a role in this space. What would you say were the key things in your past that kind of put you on a path towards this? Jude actually played a very uh, large role in this. I worked at the DSCC for over six years under Jude, and he and I, a lot of our success through the more tumultuous time of uh, the DNC and the DCCC being hacked by the by the Russians and uh, our uh, avoiding that fate was very much uh, around uh, you know, both of our discussions and implementation of, of the security controls that we put in place at the DSCC at the time. In 2013, um, I, in earnest, decided to really um, dive into security. Prior to that, I had spent most of my time just in the IT space. I, you know, first went out and got my a SANS certification. SANS is a, I guess it's a nonprofit that um, operates uh, and and does trainings for for IT professionals and others to train them up 
in security and best practices and all that. And so I, I started with that. And then after that, got my CISSP, that's a certified information security professional or system security professional. And then I have just been fascinated with the, with the intersection, the juxtaposition of, of security technology and politics ever since then. It is definitely a niche area. There are not a lot of players in the, in the space. It has been very interesting since 2015, since the, since the DNC was hacked. We kind of intersected, although I don't believe I realized it, in that Hillary campaign where I was in headquarters. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that job as it was in 2007 to be an IT in a statewide part of a presidential campaign and what what kind of what the security and IT world looked like then. Yeah. I mean that was a fascinating entry into politics. Um I, you know, I moved down to uh Washington DC in March of 2007, and I was working for a company called Geeks on Call, which was a Geek Squad competitor. So uh, I was driving around in a PT cruiser. At some point in time, I realized this is, I spent more time idling in my car due to DC traffic than I did actually arriving at anyone's site to solve their computer problems. And fortuitously, I, I met someone who was having computer issues, and they worked for the Howard Dean campaign or had previously worked for the Howard Dean campaign. And we were talking about IT and I, you know, I've always been interested in politics. And so I just flat out asked, you know, don't, don't campaigns need IT people? And she was like, absolutely they do. Um, and didn't think much of it, but, um, you know, we parted ways. And uh, about a week later, she sent me an email that was Robbie Mook. He was the state director in Nevada and he posted that he was looking for a, an IT director. And so I sent my resume in. Uh, I interviewed with Brian Pagliano, which was obviously you, you probably know from. Uh, yeah, from we worked in closely H- together for a long time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, that was it was probably the most whirlwind experience. I the interview went well, talked to Brian. They offered me the job. And within eight days, I was driving to Las Vegas um, from D.C. And. It took me two and a half days to get there. And when I arrived, Robbie gave me a big hug and he said, welcome to the team. And he said, I also didn't have the budget to hire an operations director as well. So you get to be the IT and operations director. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I had to sit down and and it was an interesting experience. I was in charge of making sure everyone, you know, had a new employee uh, healthcare and, and all their paperwork was done and submitting all the information back to HQ, as well as running background checks on potential staff, and then also doing all the IT and networking and infrastructure work, uh, opening up new offices, uh, all those types of things. It was the hardest I've ever worked in my life. I had two days off from March until February of the following year, but it was, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, it was it was a great experience, and I a lot of the people that I met there are still some of my closest friends today. And yeah, I, I think that from that perspective, for anyone interested in, in potentially doing in the field, if you will, I'm, I'm doing air quotes. You can't see that. It is such a world of difference from what I've experienced since then, as you know, in in HQ or or you know, doing consulting work or other things like that. That sort of uh, work in that orbit around campaigns, but not actually 
doing work in the state. I mean, one of the things that happens when you're sort of in the, I don't know, the back end side of politics, the people who keep the computers and the phones and all of the tools of the trade for other types of politicos is you kind of breathe the fumes of politics very closely. You kind of go up and down with the polls and the wins and the losses on the campaign trail for your candidate and things like that. How did you respond to the political side of things when you were there? Part of what I really enjoy about working in IT and security in politics is I get to turn on the politics and turn it off whenever I feel like it, because my no one measures my success based on the success of what the polling is or what the other you know aspects is. Of course, I want my candidate that I'm <laughs> working 16 hours a day for to win. But at the same time, I don't have to be in the weeds dealing with all of the, you know, brown suits and all these types of things that are just like the ebb and flow of the political space and what the latest candidate said and what they didn't say. If it feels like too much for me at any given time, I just can dive into some technical aspect of my job or, or the security aspect and just sort of turn that off, uh, which I've really enjoyed. I helped the um, videographer on the on the Hillary campaign when she came out to Las Vegas. And essentially, I was a day in the life of Hillary. And it was such an interesting experience for me. I mean, it started at five o'clock in the morning uh, and she, you know, Hillary went and met at a hospital and then and then met with uh, one of the nurses and then like had breakfast and then went to a grocery store and walked around. And then like it was just and then we went and did a stump in Pahrump, Nevada, and then we uh, went back to a different hospital and talked to another nurse. And then we I mean, it was it was it went from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. It was the most exhausting day. And she never missed a beat. And it was such a inspiration to be able to like work with someone like that and be in the motorcade and go around. But it, I don't understand how they're able to do it. And I would not be able to do it, uh, you know, day in and day out like that. It's just absolutely crazy. No, I, I've often thought that after one of her days, I need a week of rest. Uh, exactly right. <laughs> I interviewed Robbie Mook on this podcast, and I don't really know him much beyond that except by reputation. What was he like as a state director back in those days? He was great. He was very goal-oriented uh, and focused on the operational uh, aspects, um, being able to to achieve a, a lot with, with a little – I think he prided himself on, on being able to um, – do more with less, so to speak, and be able to keep our costs low in Nevada. Not sure everyone remembers, but that was the first time that they had really shuffled up the um, the primary circuit for Democrats. The first two turned into a first four, and they added Nevada and South Carolina. Yeah, correct, exactly right. And so we were third. It was it was Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada, and so it was. It was a unique experience. Like everyone in Iowa and New Hampshire are very used to political people just landing in their town for the year or six months or whatever it is before the election. And Las Vegas, and I assume I, I did not get to talk to a ton of people in, in South Carolina, but I assume that it was very different 
it was very different for us in that, you know, supporter housing was not a thing. The concept of just, hey, uh, you know, a, a Politico is going to land in our town and we just need to give them a place to, to sleep at night. I actually, the first month that I lived in Las Vegas, I was Robbie's roommate because there was no supporter housing. You know, I got to see a little bit behind the scenes. And, and I mean, frankly, we never left the office, so that wasn't a ton there. But his collegiate is in Greek uh, or, or like languages and, and like he has a background in like classics. He, Classics, yeah, and he had a. I remember he had a a Bible, and I was like, "Why do you have a Bible next to your bed?" But it, the Bible was in ancient Greek, and he would read it to like uh, chill out or be able to. Uh, I don't know if I should be sharing his uh, <laughs> his bedside book, but I, I it was definitely an interesting um, experience and getting to work with somebody as dedicated and uh, you know, Robbie was very very. Um, there was no switching it off for him. He was he was on at all times, um, and even when we had you know mandatory fun time, so to speak, where we uh, made sure that morale was good, he was still on and making sure that everyone's needs were being addressed. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a great experience, uh, and to be able to work with him at that point in his career, which was you know as he went on to run uh, Hillary's campaign in, in 2016. Uh- Looks like you spent the next couple jobs at DDC and Salsa Lab in the world, really, of IT and tech more than even though you're working for organizations that have some political bent. What were you learning along the way in those two places? At DDC, I think the biggest takeaway there was how to deal with uh, the corporate mindset and working for organizations that may be potentially not necessarily directly aligned with my own ideology. And that was definitely challenging for me. I specifically remember they knew coming in that I had worked for Hillary and and was a progressive and and definitely uh, one of the more liberal hires that they made, but they put me on an account with the American Chemistry Society, ACS. And in that time, we were ACS was lobbying to um, and running a campaign to stop our California law from preventing uh, BPA in baby bottles. Something that nowadays is just like, of course, there shouldn't be BPA in baby bottles. Like that just makes sense. But uh, at the time in 2008, 2009, BPA was was in in cans. It was everywhere, and the science at the time was was starting to come out that said that this was harmful to individuals. The problem was uh, I had to work on behalf of my client and they wanted to prevent this from happening. And I did a good job and we were able to prevent that law from going on the books. And that was about the point in time when I, when I finished that and I l- sat down and I thought of what I just accomplished, which was a success in the eyes of my company, a success in the eyes of the client that I was working for. Uh, but it was completely disheartening to me. I, I was like, wow, I just um, prevented <laughs> this thing from happening that is probably in the best interest of everyone in the world. And so uh, that was when I decided I no longer could do that. And I uh, and that was what led me to Salsa, which was still working in um, in IT and 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 you know customer service and things, it was not. Uh, it was at least ideologically aligned with what I wanted to be doing, and I did not have to sit at night and think, how am I going to rationalize this in my head? What I've just accomplished during during the workday. 
and they're a nonprofit software company later acquired by the one you're working at now. Yeah, ironically yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah, I got to work with Salsa twice in my career. Um, I guess you went on to Jackson River. What was that like? Jackson River is great. It was my first time working a fully remote job, uh, which now seems, you know, in a post-pandemic world, like that's just the standard. But uh, for me, it was the uh, it was my first experience doing that, where I had you know, no office to go to, um, anything, uh, nothing to do uh, as far as like it, it. You suddenly realize what a difference the world is when you take away the interstitial time, the water cooler conversations. It was a great experience. I got to work with. This was still a left, uh, left-leaning, um, progressive, uh, values-based company, and they uh, worked with you know Amnesty International and, and ACLU and, and um, all these great organizations. I was a project manager, and I think that what that taught me was a lot of the ability to not address everything in the immediacy, and really be able to see things six months down the road, a year down the road, as you're developing these very complicated websites and interactions. And, you know, on day one, I would be looking at a creative deck of what this website will look like. And you have to take that creative vision and turn it into a reality. And uh, as a project manager, to move that from conception to 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 the practical is is uh, is a very long and winding road. And we did all that development in Drupal with a Salesforce integration that, you know, allowed us to build in a, a very robust secure donation platform. And for me, it was definitely the, you know, I'm in IT a lot of times uh, you can be too focused on the immediate, like, how do I solve this problem? And this is the problem that I need to solve today. And uh, it's very reactionary. And as I've slowly worked my way through my career, I'm starting to become, or I have now become much more strategic in my vision and my alignment and, and what I'm attempting to achieve. A lot of that is because some of these things that I want to implement and do are now six month, one year, 18 month projects. When you're working on a campaign, um, for instance, you sit down, you got to solve that problem in the next day or two max. Uh, and now when you're thinking about how do I solve a problem in 18 months, I mean, that's the entire length of a campaign. So it's definitely a different mindset to get that uh, and, and change your way of thinking and your approach to those types of problems. What was the gravity wear interlude? <laughs> in 2011, 2012, one other aspect of me that I really you know, appreciate is, is uh, I like pop culture. I like um, sci-fi, fantasy, Marvel, DC. Uh, and I got it in my head that you know, working for someone else was not the best way to achieve greatness in the world. And I wanted to be my own boss. And so I decided to start a t-shirt business. I you know, had a partner. He was a, a developer. And uh, we built a website and asked my parents to help a little bit. They, they were willing to help me, you know, ship t-shirts when I couldn't ship them. And so I bought a whole bunch of t-shirts and I, I put them on a website and I had used some of the skills that I had learned from working at, uh, Jackson river and, and Drupal development. And we built this platform, uh, in Drupal that allowed me to, uh, to attempt to sell, uh, you know, to sell t-shirts. And it was, it was quite an experience. Um, 
I had come up with this concept that I thought was a genius, which was if you purchase a shirt and you got uh, two of your friends to also purchase shirts, then we would refund the cost of your shirt. So it was, it was called Three and Free, which also ended up happening with like Living Social and, and some of the other Groupon and stuff. But it was an actual tangible good instead of a coupon. So it failed miserably. Like It did not work at all. Uh, it, I, I think part of the problem is I definitely underestimated the sheer amount of money and investment you need to be able to carve out, especially something as commoditized as, as you know, apparel. And I was spending so much money on Google ads that it, it was just eating away at any profit that I had and potential. But it was a great learning experience. If you're not trying something like that and failing, then uh, you're certainly not growing. Were these t-shirts that were just blank were they did they have designs on them I, i'm not clear what sort of t-shirts oh yeah no they all definitely had designs they were um centered around different pop cults so you know one said brown coat and on the back it said i aim to misbehave and that was coming from firefly uh slash serenity the show a hit tv show on fox um well it wasn't uh, a hit on fox at the time but um has a strong cult following now uh well, i mean my most popular shirts at the time were you know, things like Bazinga and stuff like that from Big Bang Theory. Princess Bride, for instance, I had a Hello, My Name is Inigo Montoya shirt that just had like the Hello tag on the, the over the over the breast pocket. And so uh, it would look very nondescript until you got up to it. And it would it, like the Hello, My Name is was in red. And then below it, it said Inigo Montoya. And it was like they were all clever and, and all pop culture referenced. Um, did, did you guys design them? No, they were, there was a, a few different companies that they came from, um, but it was, I think the the unique aspect was combining all of them into one place. Anybody that had similar interests to, to you know, that mid to late twenties, uh, remembering, you know, uh, you know, one had a flux capacitor on it and stuff like that. The 80s and 90s nostalgia, and then also the current based on, on that as well. Inventory is a big pain in the ass, I've learned. Yes. <laughs> do you still have any shirts? I do. I would love to apologize to my mom. There's probably still a good four or 500 shirts sitting in, <laughs> in their office at my parents' house right now. It, it is on my list of things, and she keeps telling me, hey, we need to get rid of these shirts. And I say, oh, yeah, we're going to do that. And I definitely need to. To address that. I know that feeling with some posters. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I think as you noted, that kind of entrepreneurial experience definitely changes your mindset about what the people running companies go through. When you start a business, whether you sort of, whether it takes off and does well or struggles and goes away, the learning is fairly similar. Yeah, I can imagine. I was fortuitous in a way or, or not, depending on your perspective, that I never really had a ton of people that I would be disappointing if the venture didn't work out. But I can't even imagine, even if I had reached some level of success where I was hiring staff and then had to work through that growth phase where you are actually, you know, how do I make payroll this week or how do I do this? And, uh, you know, my staff need healthcare and they need um, retirement. And, and for all of those types of, of aspects, especially for those of us that, you know, really truly believe in this was before the gig economy and, you know, I could just 1099 everyone and, and call it a day. It was, uh, it, it was definitely um, 
an amazing experience, but also a humbling one. Um, it, it, you don't really realize you, especially when you look at these things, they're just like, oh, you know, that's, you know, the CEO does this or the individuals running the company, the senior leadership are making these decisions and you can, it, it's very easy to play armchair quarterback and say, oh, I wouldn't have done that or that's a dumb decision. Or I've used that experience and it's really informed me as I uh, have progressed through my career and understanding the difficulties and the intricacies of, of trying to manage those types of decisions, what's in the best interest of the company, what's in the best interest of the employee, and you know the greater the greater community as well. So it's it's definitely um, not an easy job, and I don't envy those that have to be in it at all times. It really helped me understand um, just how difficult and how many ways things could go poorly. I think is probably the best way to say it. Did you ever look over at Custom Inc., which turned making t-shirts into a hundreds of millions of dollar business and think, ah, there, but for the grace of God, go on. Yeah. I, <laughs> there were a few, um, 80s tees was another one that had a very similar uh, market and, and, and approach, uh, and they did very well. I definitely did. <laughs> it, it was one of those things that as I reflect, I think, well, would I have liked this to be much more successful and to, you know, maybe have made that a, a career potentially, but also at the same time, um, I'm not sure what my own, you know, self-actualization would look like, or as I reflected on being, you know, a, a t-shirt mogul or, or whatever that might look like. You talked a little bit earlier about being at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee with Jude, but how did you find yourself there? In 2011, I was still working for Jackson River. I briefly touched on the fact that that was my first experience working remote. Uh, and I quickly found out um, I do not like working remote. I do not do well. I don't have the discipline to make sure that I do all the things that need to be done for somebody in a remote environment, meaning I would, you know, roll out of bed at, at, 8.45, start my day at nine, work the day, and then sit on the couch. And suddenly, you know, three or four days have gone by and I realize I haven't left the house and talking to the plant. And uh, it, it, was, it was one of those experiences where I was like, man, this just isn't for me. I talked to Tom and Alice and the others at, at uh, Jackson River, and they were thinking about doing an office and all that. But at the same time, I saw an opportunity uh, and a friend had reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, the, the DSCC is hiring an IT person. Maybe you should uh, throw your hat in the ring. And so I emailed Jude and, and uh, I didn't know who I was emailing at the time, but Jude reached back out and called me in for an interview. And we had an excellent interview uh, and he hired me almost on the spot the same day. Tell me about working there. It is very much still geared around the campaign lifestyle as far as the cyclical nature of campaigns and every two years um, going through that aspect. But the two departments that really do not turn over at all are IT and HR slash finance. And uh, because they need that consistency and the ability to you know, implement projects that span longer than two years, I've never worked at a place where 90% of the staff were different every two years. 
new staff would come in, a new executive director would be appointed. They would hire up their senior leadership. They would bring in the, the leadership under that. One of my jobs when I first started was to set up their endpoints in their laptop or their desktop, make sure they're all situated, you know, have their accounts. So I met every single person and you start to build those interpersonal relationships with your colleagues. And then over time, you know, you, you work up to the election, the election happens, and then instantly everyone leaves and you, you know, you don't come back from, uh, from the Christmas break, so to speak. They usually, they would more or less pay you out for the rest of the year. And January 1st, you'd start this new process and the building would be empty and you'd wait for a new executive director to be appointed. And then they would hire their senior leadership team and the entire thing would start all over again. And being there six, over six years, I got to see that, you know, three times over. And it was challenging in that way because you, you have these friends and colleagues and you, you meet them and, and you work with them. And then it's all torn down and then you have to reestablish all those relationships over again. Um, so I found that part a bit challenging. Uh, on the opposite side of that, if you have colleagues that you don't particularly enjoy, you know you can always just wait another uh, 12 months and they'll probably be gone. There's two sides to that coin. The problems don't change from uh, one cycle to the next. And so uh, the other aspect of it, which would be security education, best practices, all of that, you have to re-educate every single person over again every two years as well. So that aspect of it can feel a little bit like Groundhog Day uh, at times. Did you find yourself paying close attention to Senate races? I've always had this aspect where I can either tune in or tune out based on how I'm feeling in the moment. I would print out the map. The DSCC had a, had a Senate map where you know, the states were colored based on likelihood of, of whether they were able to turn the red states blue or, or maintain. Uh, and so the, the map would change over time. Uh, and I would, I remember, you know, constantly keeping that and, and, and looking at it. Um, but if you get too, uh, too bogged down in the actual politics of it, it becomes more difficult to do the actual security and, and IT work. I did not spend a ton of time on the uh, on the specifics of the races, but it was also in IT. Uh, there's a unique aspect to it where I was not there for the career development in politics, so I had a very different interaction with a lot of the senators that would come into the building. Cory Booker would come in. Like I remember, Al Franken at one point in time came in and. Uh, I had seen him recently how he could uh, draw the entire U.S. state map from memory uh, and um, U.S. states. And we were riding in the elevator and I was like, I was like, how did you learn how to do that? And we, we just had this interesting back and forth. I wanted nothing from him and he did not need anything from me at the time. And it was a very uh, much more casual interaction than I think he was used to for, you know, dealing with uh, a lot of the, the people on the Hill and, and all that. So I reflect on it. I have... A lot of friends will say, oh, do you have any pictures or, you know, I don't even have pictures of, you know, I, I worked with Hillary one day on her entire motorcade. Uh, I've countless times have, have met her and, and had interactions. I have no pictures of me with any single politician. And yet I've probably met dozens and dozens of politicians over the course of my career. So it's sort of an interesting, um, you know, I have a lot of friends that are like, here's pictures of me shaking hands with Obama or shaking hands with Joe Biden or, or all these people. And I'm like, I don't have any of those, but uh, at the same time, it gives me a, a perspective where I just get to treat them just as if, 
you know, they were just anyone else that you happen to be uh, coming across on any given day. You noted that the other national party committees got hacked during that time and that the DS didn't. Do you think there was something you guys did differently? Hmm. There, that's a tough question. It's all about perspective. Here's how I would uh, categorize this. Let me try with an analogy. So you've got three people who are parking their car and two people park their car, you know, on the closest street. Uh, it's not well lit, uh, but it is convenient. It's right there. Uh, and you know, a third decides to park their car in a, a very well lit area that is gated and has a secure perimeter. Two of those cars get broken into and one does not. And the two that do get broken into are the ones that just parked right outside their house or, or wherever uh, they happen to be that was sort of dimly lit and not, not well secured. Is it their fault that that happened? I absolutely would say it is not. That would be victim blaming at that point. But um, in my perspective, I had prioritized in 2014 and 2015 a project to move us to Office 365 which is Microsoft's cloud offering, because I recognize that and in discussion with Jude, I said, I do not have the bandwidth or the capacity to secure this environment in the way that it needs to be secured for what we're experiencing as far as the potential for hackers. And one thing that going through security training does is it makes you a fairly paranoid person and really seeing how easy it is to compromise a system um, is, is really where it comes down to. And once you realize the level of effort it would take and how an individual with very minimal knowledge would be able to, to do some of these things, especially when you're looking at business email compromise, I said, we need to move this entire infrastructure to the cloud. And I had no experience doing that. Jude had no experience doing that. It was a daunting task, but we did that. And then on top of that, added the multi-factor authentication and some other things on top. Uh, and then suddenly, a lot of times when you're looking at uh, hacking and exfiltration of data or, or these things, it becomes a crime of convenience and a crime of the lowest hanging fruit or the organizations that ended up getting uh, broken into. And so it was, uh, I don't know, it, I mean, I think there was a lot of luck uh, as well in not getting hacked. And I definitely do not want to paint a target on my back if, if, you know, Cozy Bear or someone else is listening. I definitely don't want them to think that I am invulnerable to this. But it was definitely one of those things where uh, we had made some decisions at, at the right time and read the, you know, the writing on the wall. And we were able to avoid that from happening. Yeah. What was your reaction when you saw that the other committees had this trouble? And I mean, there were several notable security incidents in the Trump election that may have made the difference. Yeah. My career completely changed, uh, and as I'm sure everyone's did, uh, right around that time that we're working in the, in the, uh, in the national committees. Uh, and part of that was, you know, I was terrified. So the first conversation was, well, if they have the, the the DTRIP and the DNC, they must have us too. And so we quickly partnered with CrowdStrike who you know, were working to do the evaluation on their end um, and brought them into our environment as well to do an evaluation. At the end of our evaluation, they were like, this is the cleanest network we've seen. There's no signs of compromise and you guys are great. And so uh, 
then it became a, a root cause that, you know, Jude and I, Jude was like, well, why, why didn't we get compromised? And then we had to sit down and, and work that backwards uh, a little bit to make sure um, that, you know, to validate what CrowdStrike was telling us, as well as also just make sure that whatever decisions we were making that were positive, let's keep doing those things and, and not walk those back. So, um, you know, as you know, at that point in time, I was, it was the IT director, um, IT uh, and security director. It was fortuitous and a little bit of luck or maybe a lot of luck and uh, just this aspect of, um, wow, we, we didn't get hacked and this is awesome. And then we started to talk about how can we take what we've learned from this experience and apply it to as many people as possible. The DS now has, you know, spun up security education. Jude is, is doing security training for, for staff on the Hill. I actually got headhunted shortly after that because of you know, my, my street cred or sort of went up um, from that experience. And I w- went over to an organization called Rock Creek. In that period of time, like the the world is so much different since then. And there's so much more emphasis on, um, you know, campaign security, um, the individual, the security of each of these organizations. The DNC has hired a number of CISOs since then, uh, chief information security officers or chief security officers. The landscape and the attention on security posture has dramatically changed for the better uh, because it, unfortunately, you know, something had to happen for everyone to realize, wow, this this can happen and it's very expensive if it does. What was your road from there to every action now under the Bonterra umbrella? I had reached my uh, point at the DSCC where there, there was a ceiling at the DSCC based on just the sheer, you know, they're never going to be more than 200 staff. They're never really going to have the growth potential there wasn't there for me. Someone had reached out to me on LinkedIn and had said, hey, why don't you come over and do IT security at uh, Rock Creek? This is a private equity a management firm, a, a money management. Um, and they are, I mean, very large. They hundreds of billions of dollars worth of money that they they are in charge of. But um, from that perspective, I, I knew that that was going to be, you know, that was going to give me you know, control of my own budget, um, staffing and building up a team, all these things that I really wanted to uh, develop in my career. But I ran into the same problem that I had run into previously. I was still working at the DSCC during the, when Hillary lost the election and Trump was declared the winner. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this right now. Uh, and so it felt like the perfect opportunity for me uh, to get out of the political space for a little bit. But suddenly um, going into a, an organization who measures success based solely on you know, how much revenue you can generate for your clients, and there's nothing wrong with that uh, necessarily. But in that experience, what ended up happening for me was I would go to work still have these ideological viewpoints and everyone at work is like, well, Trump, who cares? Look how much money we're making in the stock market and in crypto and in all these things. And I was just like, uh, yes, but the, you know, not to be catastrophizing, but I was like, the world is falling apart. Like, look what he's doing. And he's like firing people that, and putting kids in cages and borders and all, you know, all the things that you, you were, were, talking about day in and day out, especially, you know, with 
uh, Trump on Twitter and all those things. And I was just sort of like, how is no, how do we not care about this? And they're like, this is how we measure our success. And it's, you know, the, this, we're going through this boom and the stock market's growing in double digit percentages over quarters and, and all of these types of things. And so uh, I quickly was disillusioned. Part of that problem for me was I, I underestimated how much time I needed off, which was apparently about mm, six weeks before I, <laughs> before I was ready to turn that back on. And Lou, uh, Louis Levine, uh, reached out to me and he said, you know, I've been talking, we're going to hire um, a security professional here at Every Action NGP Van. And he said, uh, every single person I talk to, um, your name comes up. So maybe we should sit down and have a chat. And so... Uh, we, we did. We, we met and I had only been at Rock Creek for about 10 months at this point. And Lou twisted my arm and he's like, I mean, are you happy? And I was like, well, not really. And he said, well, then come on back and, and get back into the, into the swing of things and, and work for an organization where you actually believe in the, in the vision. And so, and so I did. I started in January uh, 2018 here. Uh, we're at Every Action NGP Van. I'm acquainted with Lou Levine. Yeah. What was he like to work with from your perspective? I've never met anyone who can advocate so well for uh, the uh, campaigns and customers and um, the individuals that are, are, are purchasing the product. There's always an inherent friction that happens between operations and security because uh, security is not, you know, the 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 most secure system is the one that's turned off and not connected to the internet, right? But obviously, uh, every feature you add to any application or any any product increases the likelihood that that can be exploited in some way or, or, or used for a nefarious purpose. Going back and forth with Lou, his vision for what is in the best interest of the users of the application was always very spot on. We definitely had some um, some back and forth where we were like, where I would say, we need to do this. And he'd be like, yeah, but we can't do that because X this. And the key is coming to that compromise, finding that place, that middle ground where you can address the security risks uh, through various types of mitigations, either uh, administrative controls or technical controls or other things. And then you are able to release or produce an application that meets the, the needs of both the end user, but also is done in a secure way that it proves resilient to, to attack. One thing I'm, I'm definitely aware of is that NGP Van, every action, now Bonterra, went through a tremendous amount of change even during the time that you were there, probably multiplied by almost five the number of people. I'm certain, though I don't know much except from chatting with you before about how much uh, more focus there was on security and also your role has grown and expanded over time. Can you talk about that path and what it's been like as you've changed and the company's changed? Sure, sure. I mean, it absolutely has uh, changed so dramatically. I've always had a, a, a f and part of this being from, you know, working or, or trying to start my own business and uh, working with more enterprise clients. I've had a, a fairly strong enterprise mindset and my approach to information security has always been that of someone at a larger organization. But when I started in January, 2018, I believe we had 220 employees or something. Um, and, you know, all on premise, 
of course, everyone in an office in either uh, DC or Boston. And right after I started, or probably within a few months, um, you know, we announced the the acquisition of the company by Insight Partners, and so a private equity firm. That was definitely eye-opening. You know, I came on board to what I thought was a, a fairly uh, niche, smaller organization, um, and suddenly we had this influx of, of private equity and a mandate to grow and, and, and to use the, the staff, the talent that we've had, you know, we've acquired to uh, do more good is what, you know, Stu would say or others in the senior leadership. Uh, and it was, um, yeah, over the course of the next three years, we acquired six, six companies. Uh, suddenly, you know, I was, Salsa Labs was back and I, I was talking to employees that I had worked with 10 years ago, GiveGab and Mobilize and Donor Trends. And it was an eye-opening experience in the sense that um, securing all of that infrastructure and securing all of these companies uh, and working through due diligence for M&A and mergers and acquisitions activity, uh, figuring out it's a lot of gap analysis, a lot of risk analysis, a lot of going through and setting a baseline for what is how you're going to define success for a, for a company that's coming on board, really then consensus building, right? You can be a highly effective information security professional, uh, but if you can't get the suits in the room, so to speak, to agree on why something is important, it doesn't matter that you identified an issue. So for me, I'd never measure success based solely on whether or not I was able to identify whether something would be a vulnerability or risk or, or, or a threat to the organization, but actually from my ability to then uh, mitigate that risk and to make sure that we have the buy-in and get everyone on uh, on board for why it was important to address it. And so from that perspective, over the course of those three years of, of that tremendous amount of growth, by the end of that period, um, we were uh, a company of 500 employees. And then suddenly we were um, being acquired. Uh, and so that was, you know, Apex came in and, and purchased the organization and combined us with two other entities, um, social solutions and uh, cyber grants, and to form, um, you know, this new good company, which is now called Bonterra. But it was definitely a, um, you know, every time I thought, well, maybe I've learned as much as I can here, some monumental event has happened. Uh, you know, either we've acquired a company or um, we were acquired or, or like the growth has been uh, almost exponential. And so, I started as the sole security professional here at the organization, my, you know, as a, as a director of IT security, uh, very quickly realized that the expectation was for me to also have application security and compliance. And so my role started to grow and I've been successful at it. So uh, suddenly now I've, you know, I'm by the end of this year, I'll have a team of 15 people and I've, you know, built an enterprise level world-class platform for, with which that I'm going to be able to, uh, or will be able to secure all the infrastructure and, and the um, various aspects of, of uh, what is now Bonterra with now 1400 staff, four offices or five offices in just the complexities of, of that scaling and growth. 
I've watched a lot of people uh, in organizations that were growing. Some of them, as things got more complicated, their role got smaller because partially because of how they've managed their careers, whether they've stepped up to new challenges, whether they've had the capabilities that or grew them. It sounds like you were able to kind of ride that and grow a team and be trusted with, you know, responsibilities that, that are on a level that the bigger organization uh, needs. Um, Got to feel good that you've done that. It's never over. What advice would you give to people in different parts of a growing organization about how to stay, how to grow themselves and how to, you know, if they want to, not everybody does, but stay in a, in a role that's getting bigger and manage that over time. Yeah. I, I think I, I was fortuitous in that I, I had a vision for what I wanted the information security department to be at every action, uh, NGP van. And, uh, it, <laughs> it did not match what the vision was at that moment for, for the executive leadership, because, you know, it, it was at 200 employees and there's an expectation for what good is. And at 1400 employees and, and, you know, as a $2 billion company, the expectation of what good is, is very, very different. I've never been particularly good at, at tooting my own horn, so to speak. I, it doesn't come naturally to me as I reflect looking back on my career, I have been able to take advantage of opportunities that are presented from an advice perspective. It is first off, stay humble. This is not um, something where you can come in and you're not going to get anywhere by constantly having the conversation where uh, I told you so, or, or these types of mentality, especially that happens a lot in, in information security because I hear no every day. Uh, I will say, hey, this is a priority. This is something we need to address. And the answer may be, no, we just don't have the budget. We don't have the time. We don't have the capacity. We don't think that's an actual security risk. And uh, knowing which hill to die on is is really important because people are going to challenge you every day. And what an executive wants to hear is that we're never going to be hacked and you don't have to spend any money. And that's just not a, a reality that actually makes any sense. So the the case is, so then the, the conversation quickly shifts. Okay, tell me what the absolute minimum amount of money we can spend so that we don't get hacked. <laughs> and then that becomes a game. And I, and the first thing you need to explain is we're going to get hacked. That is not an if, it's a when, especially when you're talking about nation state and the threat actors that we're dealing with. The eventuality is that it's going to happen. The key is how quickly can you identify that it's happened and how well can you contain it from happening? So at some point in time, someone clicks the wrong link, enters their credentials, their email is compromised, that uh, threat actor attempts to move laterally within the organization. If you cut them off, have you been hacked? Sure. Have they actually been able to um, cause risk and, and damage to the organization? No. And that's the key. So uh, being able to establish that and coming up with a vision for information security and building the layers um, allows you to scale. 
and I think the biggest advice for anyone who works in information security that wants to move up the ranks is to understand that you have to be able to speak the business. I cannot go into a meeting and say, hey, we need this firewall uh, because it does, it has, you know, three times the, um, the throughput with IDS and IPS enabled uh, versus the old one, their eyes glaze over and they're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, if I go into a meeting and I say, hey, I'm going to enable the business to uh, you know, address uh, the needs of our growth, but in a more secure way, uh, because the ROI on this infrastructure change will allow us to uh, scale five times our current capacity without having an impact on our ability to uh, maintain the level of security and vision we have in the network, um, suddenly that conversation shifts and they're like, oh, I understand. So you're saying we can have a 5X growth based on this one expenditure and we won't have to talk about this again for based on our current um, you know, revenue projections for another six years. And then the, then the conversation shifts. Then, they, then they're looking at it from the perspective of what can I invest and what am I getting back out of it? And that's sort of a big difference. Understanding that you and the role of a CISO is no longer a technical function in my mind. And I've actually moved my entire department out of IT. I no longer work in the IT department. The reason for that is uh, my job is now uh, I'm a business translator. I need to take security, uh, technical, compliance, governance, oversight language, and turn that into revenue and impact to the business risk. Uh, if this system goes down, it will cost us this. Here's how much we it'll cost to protect that and to prevent it with a 90% certainty that it won't go down. And it really becomes just a, a dollars and cents conversation, but that's how businesses run. And you need to be able to make that translation and get the other, um, the other executives on the team to, to understand. So I think my biggest advice uh, would be you need the technical skills, um, but you quickly, you, you cannot I think one of the things that happens in IT a lot is a person will sit back and rely on those technical skills and they'll get into a meeting with someone who speaks business and they will try and throw technical jargon at them. And the person is just like, none of this means anything to me. You have to translate this. And that's, that's what my role has become. Yeah. Communication skills in almost any role are a huge additive plus for a career, just like uh, and I think anyone listening to this interview would note that you don't sound like someone who has a lot of difficulty making a point. That's really valuable. I wonder, if, as you th think just for a minute about the, the wider progressive ecosystem that NGP Van and Every Action and Bonterra are part of, which is made up of simply numerous organizations, small and large, ranging from the ACLUs and the other nonprofits to every campaign organization, the party committees and political nonprofits is a gigantic ecosystem. How do you think about the kind of culture of security that can be implemented in that far flung place, because, you know, it is nobody's main mission to be a secure organization. It's everybody's main mission in that space to fight the fight that they're fighting, right? To 
get some legislation through to win a campaign to help a party? Have you thought about that much? And how do we upgrade this? Because there are also, as 2016 demonstrated, there can be political costs, just like there can be business costs within Bonterra. There can be political costs to that that security vulnerability, which can come at you in a million directions. No, a hundred percent. And yes, I think about this every day because, you know, uh, another well, you have all these people as clients, right? I mean, or, uh, you... No, yeah, exactly right. And they're all clients. And I mean, when I reflect back on the major breaches that we've seen over the last few years, solar winds and these other these other major, it all comes down to fundamentals. You get organizations, and you'll get. CISOs that come in or security professionals, even at conferences, I get at least 50 to 100 unsolicited emails a day about some new product that will make the organization more secure and do all of these things. The conversation with campaigns and uh, nonprofits and all is, there is a list, there is a fundamental foundational aspect that you need to do to be able to secure your organization. And if you're not doing 100% of those, bolting on some new fandangled, the new new is that everyone's talking about, uh, is not going to make you more secure. It doesn't matter if you're using the latest XDR solution that's logging all these other things uh, and pulling in uh, a SIM, uh, um, security information and event, man- or, um, uh, event management, like all of these different applications are working in coherent, but then you still have, uh, you know, your password is, is you know, SolarWinds123 on this uh, product that manages your infrastructure. Something along those lines, like that is not, none of these organizations or, or the vast majority of these organizations and, and even campaigns and all that aren't getting breached uh, through some zero day vulnerability that is coming in and the Russians are exploiting um, the latest and greatest Chrome vulnerability on on an end. What they're doing is they're just creating an email that looks like it's coming from somebody legitimate, and the end user clicks it, and they're not paying attention. And so, in in many ways, the job is to build in that you know security awareness training, making sure that the staff, um, the executives, the campaigns that I'm working with, the nonprofits, they all are understand what the basics are and where you need to be uh, addressing the the uh, your security posture is to shore those up and the DNC uh, did a great job um, of coming up with you know the the security checklist uh, and that really does boil things down to here's you know what if you do nothing do these three things or do these 12 things I forget how many things are on the security checklist now but that's a great resource and uh, when you're talking about enterprise-wide, obviously that conversation shifts because I have to be doing the bare minimum or I have to be doing the checklist, but then I have to do, you know, 150 other things that also are a requirement because of the complexity of our systems and the companies we've acquired or the data flowing between systems and all of these uh, different aspects that really um, start to elevate the level of complexity of the environment. But um, at the end of the day, it it has to be about the basics. And for a campaign or someone else who's really just, I need to be able to be secure, but still 
achieve my vision. And to, to your point about nobody is doing this to be a secure organization in the sense of for that in and of itself. Uh, and so, yeah, I would say to those organizations, and I've pointed them before, go to the DNC, grab that security checklist, go through it, make sure you're doing it. Like hardware tokens, multi-factor authentication, single sign-on where you can, and ensure these types of low-hanging fruit up so that you can have a conversation. And if you get to the point where then you need to talk about more advanced security, great. But as it stands right now, 70, 80% of all organizations are compromised via email. Business email compromise is the number one attack vector to get into an organization. And if you can shut that off, you, your security posture has increased so much in just that short, uh, that short technical window uh, of achieving that. And maybe somebody will go bother the less well-lit parked car organization <laughs> rather than yours. I was thinking about what you were describing when you were hired back in Nevada, because it, basically a, a fairly young man with not a huge background and you are trusted immediately with the IT of a presidential campaign in a key state and operations like on site. And we want our system to be open to talent that way. How do you vet that the, per the next person you hire is not from the other side or some kind of plant? Or I mean, like there's a million human ways that it's impossible to secure every door, or every person, vet, vet every email that comes in. But we, we, we have to find that balance, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I yeah, my, my hiring was not, I did not go through a difficult hiring process from that perspective of, it's not like I sat down and they, you know, were reviewing 10 candidates and they chose me. Like part of that was right place, right time. And I think a lot of my career has been right place, right time. They say that, you know, uh, part of luck is, is just being open to uh, an opportunity and being able to grasp it. And um, in that experience, you know, I, when I interviewed with Brian, I remember him asking me, he said, what are the colors for when you are wiring cat five, what order do you have to put the wire? So uh, for those that don't know, when you take apart an ethernet cable, like the, the cable you plug into the back of your computer to get you on the internet before Wi-Fi was the number one thing, um, there are eight, there are four twisted pairs, so eight eight wires, and you have to put them in a specific order. And um, I don't have the order memorized. I don't know why anyone does. I mean, I have it memorized now because I've had to build so many. But at the time, he was like, oh, well, if you don't know that, and then he, he, he said it out loud. It was stripe brown, brown, stripe green, blue, stripe blue, green, whatever it is. But I took a guess. So there are two standards. There's 568A and 568B. And I knew I had a 50-50 shot. And so we finished and I said, oh, well, okay, you, that's 568B. And he, uh, he was like, oh, all right. Well, if you know, uh, if you know that the difference between the two, then I'm sure you're great. So that was sort of one of those things where I, it was a calculated risk at the time, but it, that was the level of question that they were asking me. And then I went and managed an entire state's uh, IT and operational infrastructure. We ended up with like seven different offices across Nevada. We had you know, a main one in Reno and a main one in uh, in Las Vegas, but we had Perump and uh, other smaller offices. And um, the thought, like, as I reflect on that, and a lot of that was just me, you know, 
coin flip's chance of guessing the right wire diagram for for networking cable. You would have got the job either way. I'm pretty I sure. think I, that's probably true. <laughs> it's been great to talk to you today. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? The biggest one that I wanted to talk about was giving some advice to those that are, you know, coming up in uh, politics and information security. I want to encourage those that are interested in both to to dive in feet first. There's just not enough people in this space. Jude and I, uh, once I finished my CISSP, were the only two certified information security professionals in democratic politics, as far as we could tell, across the United States. And it was sort of eye-opening to me uh, how much of the landscape has changed over the last five years. And while I'm no longer in the weeds or in the nitty gritty on, on you know, the political aspects of this, Bonterra definitely aligns with my ideological visions still. And I still get to you know, do more good and, and work for a social impact organization that is actually driven by, um, by our ability to uh, affect change as a metric for which we measure and are, are held accountable to. And um, all of that is just to say that if you, those individuals out there that may care about politics and care about information security, I, I really want them to reach out and, and, and to work with these types of organizations, talk to campaigns, talk to volunteer, uh, get out there um, and, and start to uh, really build up that, that infrastructure and, and the individuals that are, are doing this on a day-to-day basis because the only way we're going to be able to win these campaigns and 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 raise money for these nonprofits and corporate social responsibility and case management and all the things that that are important as we move forward is to uh, make sure we're doing it in a secure way. Uh, it really is sort of the the best of both worlds when you get to go to work and love the vision of your organization, but also still get to live, eat, and breathe the things that you're passionate about. Um, and that's sort of the privilege that I get to to live with every day. Makes a lot of sense. I think there is a ton of opportunity for people who have that intersection of interests or willing to build the skills along the way. Have you noted there are some firms now in the, this space that are consulting firms? What players are new or have some duration that are important in that intersection of politics and and security? There are definitely organizations that are coming up that are built on the idea that uh, a campaign, and this is still true, a lot of campaigns, unless you are a nationwide or in a uh, fairly um, well-funded state race, um, that you, they just cannot afford an InfoSec professional on staff as a paid, one, like society has deemed this role to be fairly um, fairly needed and and there is a shortage of cybersecurity professionals in the industry period. Um, and so the law of supply and demand just drives up the cost uh, of hiring those individuals. And so consulting helps a lot because the threats and um, risks that are these campaigns and nonprofits and other organizations experience are are the same. Uh, you know, they're very similar between uh, one organization and another, and that does open the door for consultants to be able to uh, come in and help um, secure those organizations. And so, I haven't kept my ear to the ground as far as like the newest ones, but I know a lot of 
a lot of them that are coming along are uh, are born out of the the right place. We all, you know, have to put food on the table, but they're not in it just for that. They're in it because they saw a need and they saw a gap in the political space, and they are filling that gap in a way that I think is advantageous for all of us and helps helps drive the you know the left progressive democratic political space as well as the nonprofit because they are able to provide that consulting and best practice and what is the best way to uh, scale up an organization that is you know starts with three people and then builds to 20 in a in an exploratory committee and then is suddenly you know 5000 staff uh, leading up into an election and then you know, tears it all down uh, two months later and or, or a month later and then no longer exists. Those types of organizations, when you get into the thousands of staff, still have the same problems as a, as a large enterprise. Not having a security professional on staff is, is a struggle. And if you didn't make the correct decisions initially when you were five staff, uh, then you are going to run into problems when you are 5,000. It's important. And, and But I also recognize that you're, you're not going to be able to, you know, hire someone whose job is full time. So, we're working with these various consultants and organizations that have started to fill that niche is the ideal way to make sure that you make sound security decisions at the inception of, of your nonprofit or campaign uh, that won't make it difficult for you to be more secure in scale at the higher staffing that would come eventually. Very good to talk to you today. Uh, anything else you want to say? Um, no, I don't think so. This has been great. I really appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate you taking the time. That was Dan Seals. Dan is at bonterratech.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.